0: Welcome to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we explore how studies here are changing our world today and in the future. This time we continue our look at plastic pollution and we're in good company. The international community have been having similar discussions.
1: There's a real recognition that we have to take action now because the problem is getting out of control and it's just urgent. And so I think... The logical next step from where the world was at was to begin to negotiate a treaty, and that's what's happening.
0: That's Professor Steve Fletcher, Director of the University of Portsmouth's Global Plastics Policy Centre. And joined by his colleague, Research Lead Anteya March, they'll unpack the details from the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee, or INC's, second meeting to develop an international agreement on plastic pollution.
2: This means that all the signatories of the United Nations, have agreed to develop a text over the next two years which will indicate all the actions that need to be taken at the global level, including the targets, the ambition, what are the specific policies and actions that need to be taken and how this is going to be delivered. Steve and Antea were at INC2 in Paris,
0: presenting the University of Portsmouth's findings and research. In this episode, you'll hear what was agreed, the roadmap ahead and the innovative ideas that the Global Plastics Policy Centre hopes will influence the way the plastic reuse is handled in the future. Revolution Plastics is a University of Portsmouth initiative that Antea and Steve are very much a part of, and a lot of their work reflects the conversation we'll be having in this episode. But what is Revolution Plastics?
1: Revolution Plastics is the university's mission-driven research initiative to tackle the negative effects of plastic pollution across the entire life cycle of plastics. And we bring together researchers from fashion through environmental science, through policy and business, psychology, all the way through to using enzymes to digest plastic waste. Plastics are a really strong research theme within the university. A lot of universities do research into aspects of plastic pollution or or plastic materials quite commonly as well. But there are very few universities around that really pull all of that together into one coherent research initiative. So I think we're pretty unique in that sense.
0: The university's Global Plastics Policy Centre sits inside Revolution Plastics, providing evidence based support at a point where governments, businesses, citizens, and researchers meet all
2: useful insights when it comes to negotiations. The reason that we set up the Global Plastics Policy Centre is there's this critical evidence and knowledge gap that exists about plastics in general, but more specifically plastics policy and what's working on the ground. So there's huge disconnect between what we're seeing and the policies that are being implemented and the outcomes that these policies are having. And often the monitoring and evaluation associated with policies isn't done by those who design and implement the policies. So there's this critical disconnect between policymakers and on the ground change. And that is a key role that we are here to fulfill is providing the evidence on what works so that decision makers know what routes to take based on how things have worked in the past. And what we're doing in terms of the global plastics treaty is we're providing plastics policy based analyses that can inform delegates who are there to negotiate the substance of the treaty with what is working on the ground? What are the barriers to effective plastics policy? And how can we improve what we're doing to ensure that what's done at the national level can filter up towards an effective plastics treaty?
1: We are championing the global goal of eliminating the release
2: of plastic into the environment by 2040 in order to enhance the
0: environment. Yeah. You'd be excused if you hadn't heard of INC1 or INC2. But unless you've been living under a rock, you'll be aware of the plastics pollution crisis and have likely heard something about the international summits being held to address the problem.
2: At the last United Nations Environmental Assembly, they agreed to adopt a resolution to develop a legally binding instrument to end plastic pollution, which we refer to as the Global Plastics Treaty. And this means that... All the signatories of the United Nations have agreed to develop a text over the next two years which will indicate all the actions that need to be taken at the global level, including the targets, the ambition, what are the specific policies and actions that need to be taken and how this is going to be delivered. We don't know yet on what timeline, but it will have something specific that countries will have to work towards. From the outside, it
0: might look like governments across the world have done very little about plastic pollution until very recently. But Steve says that's not entirely fair.
1: The UN Environment Assembly, which is the world's highest environmental decision-making body, has been passing resolutions about plastic pollution since 2014. But they've largely been about trying to understand the problem and trying to figure out what the flows and pathways are of plastics through the world, through the environment, but also beginning to think about the impacts of plastics on human health. But now that work has come to the point where action has to be taken. And there's a real recognition that we have to take action now because the problem is getting out of control and it's, it's just urgent. And so I think the logical next step from where the world was at was to begin to negotiate a treaty and that's what's happening.
2: The first round of negotiations, which took place in Uruguay, really were more on procedural matters. So what is going to happen over the next five international negotiating committees? And what this saw was not really discussions on the content of the treaty, but how it's going to work. And while these may sound as relatively dull procedural matters, these are really important in influencing the outcomes of the treaty and what it will look like based on how influential individual countries can be in progressing the outcomes of the treaty or hindering its progress. And there are also a large number of other stakeholders that arrive at these negotiations to make sure that their voices are heard. And this includes stakeholders from industry, stakeholders from community organizations, from environmental groups, from waste picker alliances. And coordinating all of that information is also critically important to ensuring that this treaty is fair and equitable and allows for those who are involved in more marginalized communities to ensure that their rights are protected as well. These kinds of conversations have,
0: of course, been happening for some time, but often as part of a so-called national action plan. Antea has some concerns over the effectiveness of this approach,
2: even when it feeds into a more international agreement. National action plans can essentially become a voluntary measure where a country will identify a plan or let's call it a roadmap or strategy as to what they will do, to deliver on something such as the plastic pollution problem. Where we've seen national action plans being used in other international environmental agreements is such as the Paris Climate Agreement, where every country submits their nationally determined contributions to indicate these are the actions we're going to take to ensure that we are mitigating and adapting to climate change. So it's very likely that this approach will be used in the Global Plastics Treaty because it allows for national contexts and the circumstances of individual countries to be accounted for. So national action plans are good because they allow for this flexibility. However, what we've seen in the past is that they're often uncoordinated, they're unmonitored, they're non-binding. So this really makes it quite inconsistent and difficult to measure. And it essentially allows for countries to have a voluntary measure because There's no mandate as to what needs to be in the national action plan. So you could produce a national action plan, put it on the table and say, this is the best national action plan that's ever been produced. And that's where it ends. And there's no accountability to really ensure that these national action plans are being delivered. And... In combination, what we're seeing is a lack of transparency, a lack of funding to help lower-income countries deliver their national action plans or even write them in the first place in a way that is useful and meaningful in their country context and no legislative support thereafter. So we're seeing quite a gap in the effectiveness of national action plans. So has INC2
0: delivered? Steve has been watching developments closely.
1: We started to see some of the geopolitics come into play, I think it's fair to say. There were a small group of countries for the first couple of days who were really focused on procedural matters and voting matters that really prevented the countries that wanted to get on and discuss the substantive matters around how we tackle plastic pollution, what measures actually work. The discussions moved on, thankfully, from procedural matters and really focused on the substantive matters that were in the options report that UNEP published ahead of the meeting. And this is really important because the discussion of the substantive matters helps the INC secretariat to understand where countries' views are around some of the key issues. I'm really pleased to say that by the end of the negotiations on Friday evening, they ended with a request submitted to the chair of the committee meeting to develop a zero draft of the treaty ahead of the meeting in November. And what that means is that by the time the next meeting happens in November, there will be a full draft of the treaty that the negotiators will be able to begin discussing. But it was only with that discussion of the substantive issues for the last three days of the meeting in Paris that that request to the chair could be made. Otherwise, the chair would have no clue where countries' opinions were vis-a-vis the critical issues of how they wanted to deal with the pollution.
0: So some progress has been made, with a full text to look forward to in November. But what does Steve and Antea hope to see included in the draft?
1: What I certainly would like to see is a real f- focus on tackling plastic pollution at source. It's increasingly obvious that no waste management system anywhere in the world really can cope with the absolute flood of plastic that's being created, used, and becoming waste. The the world's just drowning in plastic. So what I think should happen is that we need to reduce the amount of plastic entering the economy in the first place. We could have a ban on certain types of plastic. We could have a tax on plastic that makes plastic less attractive. And we could transition to large-scale reuse systems, where instead of having single-use plastic, we have reusable materials, which means we don't need to create the single-use plastic in the first place, next I'd like to see some way of circulating plastics in the economy as much as possible so that plastic that does exist is useful and continues to be used and at the end of its life it has value it can either be reused or recycled or refilled in some way and the final thing I'd like to see is some way of dealing with plastic that properly is at the end of its life or plastic that was made before the treaty came in place and there's just no sensible end of life way of reusing it or refilling it or anything like that so we just need to find a safe way of dealing with that plastic
2: and i think some critical things that we're going to need to see in terms of how the treaty is going to work is particularly we're going to need legally binding stringent measures that encourage countries or almost force countries to take action because there are a lot of countries with vested interests in the plastics economy that will naturally be resistant to this type of change and uh, what we're also going to need to see is financial support and technical support for countries with lower capacity to help them be able to deliver on the targets or requirements of the treaty. And very importantly, what we'd really like to see in the treaty is that the informal waste sector, the waste pickers are really included in the treaty and aren't forced to formalize in a way that removes their rights and ambitions for their lives So making sure that the treaty is really equitable and accounts for all the different communities involved in plastics and waste management.
0: And at the risk of sounding impatient, when will
2: this treaty actually get agreed and signed? What's the timeline? They set a very ambitious timeline for the delivery of the text of the treaty, which was two years. So we're hoping that by the end of 2024, they should have the final treaty ready. Now, this is a very tight timeline for an international negotiation, but that really highlights that the global ambition exists and the urgency is there to deliver this treaty. However, that doesn't mean that at the end of 2024, countries will all be bound to what is in the treaty. Then there's still the process of signing and ratification of the treaty. And what the head of The United Nations Environment Programme really emphasised that this INC is that industry and countries should really not delay action and wait for this treaty to be in place to start moving forward in addressing plastic and plastic pollution and really should start working now to make the changes needed to address something as urgent as this.
0: As the international organisations get their heads down to write the first draft of the treaty... Steve and Taya are proud of what they've been able to share at INC2, speaking to a packed room of delegates from across the globe about their large-scale review of what plastic reuse really means.
1: A lot of people are, at least in part, already familiar with reuse systems in our everyday lives. So when we go to a cafe, we don't assume that we're going to take the plates and the cutlery away with us, but they belong to the cafe, they stay there and they're reused. Now, why not apply that logic to other parts of our lives when we get something delivered to us through the post, we have packaging around that, why not send that packaging back to be reused? When we buy anything from the supermarket, why don't we reuse that packaging? So reuse is an opportunity to move away from an emphasis on single-use packaging, got a reliance on single-use packaging, to a much more reusable, resource-efficient way. So a piece of packaging could be used 10, 50, 100 times And each time it's used, it prevents a new piece of single-use plastic being created. So our report is looking at how we make that a reality. And the sorts of things we're finding is that we need leadership from government to really help businesses upscale their use of reuse, and also to help investors have certainty that reuse systems are Sensible way forward that if they invest in them, we need to recognize that reuse is a system solution, not just packaging. It's no good just making some reusable packaging and hoping for the best. We need some mechanism for that packaging to get back to the packaging owner. What we need then is for that packaging to be washed and to be made hygienic, and then it can be reused. So, from the customer's perspective, all they do is still go to the shop, buy the shampoo in a bottle off the shelf, take it home, use it. And at the end of the use of that particular plastic bottle, they then put it somewhere where it's then taken back to that central hub, washed, refilled, and then it appears on the shelf again. So it's not on the consumer to make all of the right choices.
0: And that brings us nicely to the University of Portsmouth's Plastics Future Conference 2023, taking place in June. There's some exciting stuff happening right here.
1: We've got probably around 120, 130 people joining us in Portsmouth for a really exciting interdisciplinary conference, exploring different aspects of how we can tackle the plastics crisis. And we're coming at it from all sorts of different angles, from a psychology angle, from fashion. We're talking about the way in which microplastics have a role to play in all of this. We're also talking about the Global Plastics Treaty and also looking at plastics as a feature of society and how that's changed over time. And really adopting a natural science, social science and arts-based approach to how we consider tackling plastic pollution it really reflects the way that our team works because we do come from a whole variety of different disciplines but it also reflects how important it is not to just see plastic pollution as a natural science question but seeing this as an embedded social cultural challenge that requires all sorts of economic social cultural shifts as well as understanding the science better
0: So as we look forward to INC 3 in November, a draft treaty and another step in the right direction to tackle plastic pollution, Steve has been heartened by the reactions from those attending INC 2.
1: It's really encouraging to see that in a lot of the discussions of substantive issues, reuse kept coming up time and time again as one of the key solutions, particularly helping us move away from single-use applications of plastic. It's really important to realise it's single-use plastic that is the vast majority of the plastic waste that we see in the environment. And so the more we can begin to take steps to strip that out of the economy, the better that will be for everybody.
0: Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. If you want to find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth, go to our website. You can also get news on the latest developments here at the university direct to your inbox. Just hit subscribe at port.ac.uk forward slash solve. That's it for another series. We'll be back in August covering topics as diverse as self-help books, ChatGPT, and CSI myth-busting, as well as a special launch episode to celebrate our 100th episode. Click follow or like in your podcast app to be sure that the new series arrives safely onto your phone and tablet in the summer. Bye for now.